This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 22. Well, one of the things that I ask a lot of my coaching clients to do is to define their professional and their parenting brand. And by brand, I mean just how they want to be seen at their best in a way that's unique, that's authentic to them, that's their most powerful, and that's comfortable. But using that specific assignment or tool, we can really kind of together push against how somebody wants to be seen, how they want to show up, how they want to be known, how they want to build their careers, and then how they want to communicate around them. What does staying true to yourself mean to you? How can you balance a demanding career and thrive as a working parent? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Daisy Dowling. Daisy's an executive coach and leading expert on working parenthood. Daisy's also the founder and CEO of WorkParent, a coaching, education, and community building firm for working parents and the organizations that support them. Daisy's purpose and work is rooted in a simple, bold vision that all working parents can succeed on the job and remain true to themselves while raising terrific kids. Daisy brings her vision to life in her book, Work Parent, A Complete Guide to Succeeding on the Job, Staying True to Yourself, and Raising Happy Kids. This is a must-read book for both HR leaders and working parents as Daisy brings the bold vision to life by outlining pragmatic and actionable steps that can make an immediate impact on how we both manage work and being a parent. Before launching WorkParent in 2016, Daisy led global leadership development efforts at four Fortune 500 organizations, most recently as Managing Director and Global Head of Talent Development at Blackstone. During our conversation, Daisy and I discussed why she went to HR after getting her Harvard MBA, what she learned about coaching leaders while at Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Blackstone, why she thinks the best talent leaders are barrier breakers who help people to unlock their potential, why she asks for coaching clients to define their professional and parenting brand, why every working parent should have an already done list to track their daily accomplishments, and her advice for how HR professionals can balance our demanding careers and succeed in our personal life and much more. Daisy, welcome to the Future of HR. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm psyched for this conversation. So the first question for you is, after getting your MBA at Harvard, you transitioned into HR as a career. In fact, you were actually featured in an HBR article titled, Why You Went to HR. Tell us more about your decision, because that is not typically the career path when someone gets a Harvard MBA is to go into HR. Yeah, it was actually at that time, and I graduated 20 years ago now, which seems somewhat incredible. But at that time, it was very unusual for people to go into the human capital field. But for me, it was something that I couldn't not do. Before I got my MBA, I worked for five years at J.P. Morgan in a financing role. And what became very clear to me from day one of my career was that I was wired to do things on the human side of the business. 
So the recruitment, mentoring other people in the or inside the organization, thinking about how senior leaders in the organization came across when they had a town hall or ran a meeting, just the way my brain is shaped really tilted it, really drew me into the human capital side of things. And when I got out of school, when I finished my MBA, I had the opportunity to go back into a financial services role, to go to Goldman Sachs, but to do senior leadership development. So to work with very senior people within the organization on their career development, on their professional skills. And it was really a great role for me in terms of my industry knowledge and background, but also that really taught me how to coach. And so that's how I got my start in the field. And, you know, people will say, oh, that's so strange that you went from, you know, getting an MBA into HR. But to me, and in, in hindsight, it felt like a very natural progression. My question for you, though, is when you back to get your Harvard MBA, did you think you'd go into do something different, like operations or more marketing? Or was HR always the destination for you? Yeah, it wasn't always the destination. And here's why. And maybe this will resonate with, with people listening that in a lot of organizations, and I think just more broadly, and I'm going to be very, very blunt here when I say this. And I say it as somebody who has dedicated the totality of my career and adulthood to this field. But I think sometimes the field is misunderstood or gets a reputation or has a perception that's quite different than the truth and the reality of building a career in, inside this function. And I think a lot of people in, in business schools and law schools and other different professional environments don't really understand how terrific, how engaging, how motivating a career in the human capital field can be. There's a sense that, oh, well, it, you know, it isn't HR. Those are the people who, you know, who do the paperwork for hiring or those are the people who run the benefits plans. And that may have been true decades and decades ago. It's certainly, as we all know, not true now. HR, particularly post-pandemic, we're tasked with so many different things in an organization. We're sort of the nucleus, the center of the organizations that we work inside and people come to us for so much. But that's not always transparent when you're outside the field. So my colleague or my business school classmate, Matthew Breitfelder, who has built a career different to mine in many ways, but also in the human capital field, we wrote this article for the Harvard Business Review in 2008. And we said, we're two young HR human capital practitioners. And here's why we chose the field. And here's why we think it's incredibly exciting. And it may not be the field that you see or perceive if you're outside of it. And here's why it's value added. And here are some of the new trends and approaches and things that are going on in HR. And we wrote this very sort of earnest piece and we thought, well, who's going to read it? And we were so delighted when that was published many years ago now, but when that was published, because both of us were flooded and inundated with people who either wanted to make career switches into HR and wanted to talk to us, or who were already in the field and said, I gave this to my entire team to read. Or I'm teaching a, a part-time class at the local university on human capital, and I gave it to my students as a motivator, as a way to understand where HR is going. And so it, we still get incoming unsolicited you know, questions and emails from different people about it today. So we were so pleased that we were able to have that impact. Well, and that article had an impact on me as well. We actually met after the article, which is really funny because I was like, wait, I recognize you from that article, you and Matt. 
And for me, it was so validating because I had, you know, someone who has a PhD, but probably would have got my MBA and would have done something more in a business role had there not been the field that we're in today around, I'd say, leadership development, organization development, talent management, that strategic part of HR. And so it's so validating to see that. And I think that's why that article resonated so much. Plus, it broke the mold of I went to my Harvard MBA to do investment banking, et cetera, et cetera, right? Other degrees that people think of when they think of Harvard MBAs. So smart people can do HR is what you proved very clearly. Yes, that, that, it's a, that it's a really great place to make your career. And it's a field that is central and it's evolving. It's a frontier. And I think that's what makes it so exciting. Yeah, and it's ever changing, like you said. I think even since the pandemic, it feels like HR has become so much more central to the world at large and businesses and making sure things are going the right way. Absolutely. I made this argument many years ago when the article was published, but I think about the past several years and, for example, the increased and very rightful spotlight on DEI issues. Well, HR owns that and we need to be at the forefront of driving that conversation and impact forward. Or thinking about health, welfare, mental health, well-being of employees through the pandemic and now post-pandemic. Well, guess who owns that? That's HR also. So I just think that there is there is more and more that's going to be top of mind for CEOs and other C-suite executives that they're going to be turning to the HR function and to HR partners to try and do and manage and solve. And this field will be ever more important inside organizations and therefore a great place to practice your work, to build a career. Absolutely. And the flip side of this is that the expectations are raising on what we expect from our HR teams, our HR leaders, and what we can do and the impact we can have on the business, which is partly why I really want to start this podcast, because I really want to make sure we're elevating the field. And I know you're doing that in the work you do with WorkParent, but that's the other piece. People are expecting more for us and we have to continue to do that. And so I really hope we see more people going to Harvard or other MBA schools, getting advanced degrees, coming from the line to understand how we can drive change and be that part of the business is looking for. Absolutely. And maybe coming from other fields and functions also. I think people who are coming from the line, as you say, but who are coming from the law or who are coming from, you know, psychology, PhD backgrounds. I mean, there is so much range in terms of what HR is responsible for that I think top talent of lots of different backgrounds and lots of different career preparations can be hugely additive to our field. And again, it can be a great place to, to thrive career-wise. I want to talk a little bit more about after you got your MBA and had made that transition to HR as you talked about, you had the opportunity to work for Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Blackstone, all really around leadership development, talent management type roles. Talk about what those experiences, you know, how they taught you more about how you develop leaders. What were some insights you had from working in those different and great organizations? Yeah, so I had a couple of different types of roles, but all of my work in those three big organizations, and they're similar in many ways and different in others, but it was all around making people more successful in their jobs. So helping people find what they needed to do, their playbook for success. And sometimes that was through additional feedback. Sometimes that was through one-to-one coaching that I personally delivered. Sometimes it was through exposure to other parts of the business. But I really thought of myself, no matter what I was doing in in whatever firm, I really thought of myself as a 
sort of a barrier breaker, right? You would have a really talented person on one side and you would have the runaway successful career that they could have on the other side. And my goal was to try and put those two things together and to say, what's in between them? Is it a skill they need to develop? Is it a a network, a connection they need to make? And then try and actually clear that barrier away so that the person and their long-term success could be joined, right? So the person could find that success. And as I did so, the key insight for me, and this may also just be how I'm wired or the observation that, that I like to make, but the observation to me was as much as I tried to do that work and had to do that work at scale, right? Morgan Stanley had 65,000 employees. Blackstone, while I was there, doubled in size, right? So it was all about growth and reaching larger numbers of people and making sure that I, as one person, could have impact on many. But the thing that I kept coming back to was that to have that impact from a career development perspective, it had to feel individualized. So every time I spent that little bit of extra effort or if I was designing a leadership development program, I could build in some sort of individual aspect to it, an individual assessment, a one-to-one meeting, just a few times with a coach some bespoke individualized support and counsel. That made the benefit and the value so much greater for each person who was in that program or each person I was trying to help. So I, like everybody else, love to find efficiency and to think, how can I do this in as little, as much as possible and as little time as possible? So I always kept reminding myself to slow down and say, How am I going to meet each individual where they live, their career goals, their career interests? How am I going to make this feel like it's something that was really designed just for them, even if there's 200 other people in the program? And that was the thing that I think led me to the success that I wanted in those jobs. That's a great insight because a lot of times we are trying to scale 65,000 employees or it's a high potential program. And we're always worried about consistency, right? But what it sounds like the personal touch that you spent to get to know the talent, to really think about, hey, what are the barriers you're facing in your career that are holding you back? Let me help you think that through is what made the difference and probably what people remembered the most about how you did those programs, I'm guessing. Yeah. There were two things I kept repeating over and over when I was talking to participants in programs like that. And one was, we're going to do what works. Right. So I think consistency is a huge value and everybody who's in a a top talent development program should have the same benefits and opportunities and you want to be fair. But one size doesn't fit all. And a lot of people who are in those programs might have very differentiated career interests or ambitions or dynamics at play in other spheres of their life. So to really be a good listener, to meet them where they live and to find what's going to work for them whether that's a very different sort of profile of how the program plays out versus having everybody go through or approach the program in the same way. So that's one thing I always said. And the other thing that I always said was, I'm working for you, right? So my job is not to tell you the answer. It's not to tell you have to do certain things as part of this program. It's to put a set of resources in front of you and to serve you, right? It's your career. It's your success. And I'm here to help you to help guide you, but help you finesse this whole process. And I think those two things usually sat pretty well with the individuals who I was trying to coach or counsel or or support, because it's a little different, I think, than what we get in most of our day-to-day jobs and organizational lives, which is that we're working for somebody else and that we have to toe the line. 
and that I was meeting people where they lived. It felt like a, a safe space away from some of the rest of their career thinking. You know, what I think you're really doing there is what great HR and talent people do is they really are thinking about the other person. It's not about us as much as it's about how do we really help you? And that I think great HR people and talent folks are always thinking about that. The way you describe it is brilliant, the way to handle that. And think about how can we help you grow, develop, and bring that personal touch is so important. And yeah. I'm guessing that's it's kind of resonated with you as you moved into starting WorkParent, which is the company you founded now. I'm connecting the dots in my own way here. But tell us more about why you started that company and what you do for working parents and organizations. Yeah. So I love one-to-one coaching and advising, which you know I've done throughout most of my career. And I always had in the back of my mind that, quote unquote, at some point that I might go independent and build my own firm that was just focused on delivering coaching and advisory services to individuals and maybe groups of leaders. But I didn't think it was going to happen quite as soon as it did. And the origin story of WorkParent, I feel like I should have a glossy, glamorous description of why I started this thing. And the plain, plain old answer is I started this because I really needed it. I needed the service myself. And so I had to deliver it to other people. So I was in a very demanding, really kind of a dream job inside a big private equity firm, doing a lot of one-to-one coaching, career support, assessment work, and so forth. And it struck me that in this high octane environment that I could give people career advice all day long. And I did. But I wasn't able to advise them on that really critical other sphere of their life, which let's not kid ourselves that they had top of mind even while they were working 12 hours a day. So I could tell somebody, for example, here's how to manage your calendar now that you've been promoted and you have more, a bigger team and more responsibilities. Here's how to pick up some extra time. And they would look at me and they would say, yeah, but I need even more time than that because I've got to get to daycare pickup every day at 6 p.m. Or I have twins who are five years old and I really need to be a present parent for them or whatever. And and I, you can see where this movie is going. I actually became a parent while at that firm. And so all of a sudden I found myself as a working mom with zero playbook. Here I'm the career development expert. And I had absolutely no idea how to tell my boss's boss that I was still interested in promotion, even though I had just had a baby, or how to announce to my colleagues that I was off to the pediatricians, or how to define myself. Was it okay to mention parenting in front of really sort of, you know, tough business type colleagues that I had? And those were things that all of the generic advice out there, and there was a lot of generic advice about oh, it's not about work-life balance. It's about work-life integration or don't just work harder, work smarter. And I was getting advice like that, that I had no idea how to implement or action. And it just didn't feel very supportive or helpful. And I wanted better. And I wanted better for myself. And I wanted better for my clients who always appreciated really tactical things they could do. So I got annoyed and needy and curious all at the same time. And I started going out to other working parents um, inside, you know, my circle, my professional and personal circle, and just saying, what works? Okay, when you return from parental leave, what were the techniques that worked for you? Or how do you manage your calendar now that the kids are teenagers? Or, and I just started asking tons and tons of questions. And every single parent was happy to talk about that. 
there were just, a, and a happy to share these nuggets of advice. There was a gazillion sort of techniques and tools and hacks that were just out there, like ripe for the picking, but that I didn't feel anybody had picked. So I began kind of grouping those and using them in my own coaching to great effect. People loved this. And I realized, you know what? I could go out on my own now and start just coaching around this working parent thing. I couldn't find anybody else who was doing the same. They're just, it just was kind of was not a part of the coaching field. People really need this resource, and I feel like it's a good deed to be delivering it. So that's what prompted me to to get started. Well, it may not be a glossy brochure, but I think it's an amazing story, Daisy, of just really identifying the real need you had and then doing the homework you did to go and uncover you know, what actually works. There's just so much stuff that's put out there today that really isn't great advice. You know, it's very generic. We've heard it a thousand times, like work yeah. smarter, work harder, or have work-life integrations not going to actually help get your kids to daycare in the morning while you have to take a conference call. Yeah. Or it's just really depressing. I mean, there's a lot of problem identification out there. And if you're a really hardworking single parent, let's say, and you're trying to figure out how to, you know, how to excel on the job and be a good parent, to hear somebody else say, oh, well, you know, it's just really hard. That's not helpful. It doesn't, it's sympathetic, but it doesn't help you really do what you want to do. Now, of course, I say all this like, oh, I just hung out my own shingle as if that was sort of like an easy thing. I started this in 2016 and got a contract to, to write a book about working parenthood also in 2018. And as I was doing that, um, as I was trying to start the, you know, start the firm and also sell this book proposal I had, I can't tell you how many people in HR and outside of HR said to me, well, is that really an issue? Or, wow, you're focusing on that? Or one person I remember who was a wonderful mentor to me said, how are you ever going to earn any money focusing on that topic? So it, it was definitely a little bit of a lonely ride. I think what the pandemic then did, and I don't wish for the pandemic on anyone to ever come around again. It was so awful for so many reasons we don't need to you know, bring back up. But the thing that it did do was basically pull aside the curtain and show everyone everywhere how hard it is to be a working mother or father. And all of a sudden, this little sort of like orphan niche topic that people were saying, why are you doing that? All of a sudden was making front page headlines on the Wall Street Journal. And so it was lucky in a way. And I felt very, um, I felt very called and very privileged to be able to serve working parents during the pandemic. And now as we're in the new normal also. Yeah, you're right. I guess the benefit of the pandemic was we got inside everyone's living room and saw that we had kids and we have dogs and we have, you know, significant others and we have real lives outside of work, which was great. And I think it has made work less formal in my perspective and people are a little bit more accepting. But Daisy, what you're really talking about though is I don't think we have a lot of good rules, rituals, practices to still talk about our personal lives. I mean, there's always pressure to say, I'm going to deliver 50 hours, 60 hours a week, whatever it is. And someone asks, and I'm just going to do it, even though really I've got three other things I need to go get done. And it's hard, to your point, depending on what your working parent situation is. So talk a little bit more about the common challenges that you hear from working parents. What are they facing and how are you recommending they deal with some of those common challenges? Yeah. I mean, you raise a really important one or maybe two right there with what you just said, which is that uh, virtually every working parent struggles with this 
how should my parenting be or not be a part of my professional brand? And how do I communicate when career and caregiving responsibilities collide? Right. Those are two biggies. Some of the other greatest hits of working parenthood are time management. Like, how do I fit this all in? How do I particularly a lot of people become parents when their careers are really accelerating? They're sort of mid-career. They're looking to take on more. Maybe they're going for that big brass ring promotion. And now you throw a baby on top of that. And how do you make that all work? Um, how do you think about, and this comes up in virtually every working parent conversation, how do you think about guilt, that feeling of internal conflict, of not feeling so at ease with how you're balancing things? And how do you get to a realistic place where things don't feel so, you know, so difficult, so crummy all the time? Um, that's true for every parent, incidentally. It's not just mothers. I should say that the working parent work that I do is 100% inclusive. So it's moms, dads, people at every phase of parenting. And these issues, including the guilt one, go across the entire spectrum. I could go on, but those are some really, really common things that are top of mind. I I've almost haven't met a working parent who doesn't struggle with them. What do you recommend people are doing? I mean, there's so many different situations that people can face. How do you help people sort of categorize these different challenges they're having, whether it's guilt, et cetera, and starting to take some actions to get them moving forward? Yeah. So my goal as coach is to give people some really tactical, concrete tools that they can use to find the right solutions to them. So we open up the aperture and we think about what's going to work here. And that usually involves sharing a lot of different ideas about how they could kind of progress or what actions they should take, but getting to that point of action. So let's use a really, really specific example here, which is the first thing you said was around communication and I'm working 50 or 60 hours a week, but how do I let other people know that, you know, that I have this set of responsibilities or that I am a parent? Well, one of the things that I ask a lot of my coaching clients to do is to define their professional and their parenting brand. And by brand, I mean just how they want to be seen at their best in a way that's unique, that's authentic to them, that's their most powerful and that's comfortable, right? And so as a professional, maybe you wish to be seen as strategic, thoughtful, creative, judicious, et cetera. A lot of times when I prompt people to do this exercise, they will say, well, I'm, you know, part of my professional brand is, um, you know, the hardest worker or really responsive. And we kind of gently play with the different descriptors or ways that they're thinking about their brand. Maybe they are a really hard worker and I salute that. But if you as a working parent now, as I tell people, if you as a working parent are trying to compete on res or be known for your responsiveness, you're always going to be in a little bit of a crunch because that that is going to be you're always going to want to be in front of your device or in front of your laptop. And any time you spend with a baby is going to feel like you're transgressing against your work self or your work goals. So maybe now as a parent, instead of being the hardest working now, maybe efficient is what you want to be seen as instead of hardworking. So in sort of these back iterative conversations, but using that specific assignment or tool, you we can really kind of together push against how somebody wants to be seen, how they want to show up, how they want to be known, how they want to build their careers, and then how they want to communicate around that and how they want to have that dialogue with some of their colleagues in a way that feels like a no-brainer, that they're not constantly second-guessing, how am I coming across? because they've got a template for it. 
So that that's just one specific example. There are certainly, you know, many, many others. One of the things I love to ask people to do who feel like they have too much to do, like that kind of working parent overwhelm feeling that I certainly have. I think that we all have like the to-do list never gets any shorter and we're running as hard as we can. I give them the assignment of keeping an additional list, an already done list. And you throw anything you've already accomplished today, like, you know, you threw in a load of laundry or you had a great meeting about that big project or you were able to mentor a colleague and get them onto good track or you snuggled with your toddler, whatever it is, you put that on your already done list. And when you feel overwhelmed and like, I'm not getting any traction here, I'm running in place, I'm so exhausted as a working parent, you pull your already done list out and you read over it. And it reminds you of the unbelievable amount that you are accomplishing. And it anchors you back in that sense of personal power and of I'm doing what's important, as opposed to just feeling like you're under the gun and being your life is being controlled by your to-do list. So it's just lots of little techniques and hacks like that adapted to whatever the working parent brings into the session. Well, I love the already done list. I think that's a brilliant way to think about it. Talk to me more about once you get the brand, the professional, the professional brand, the parenting brand in your minds. And I love the idea of being more efficient. Is there a big unveiling? Do you go talk to your boss and say, hey, now that I'm a working parent, here's how I'm really thinking about my time and how I'm going to perform. Is that what you recommend with your coaching clients? I recommend that they do what's going to work for them. And I realize that sounds like a non-answer, but I work with clients in so many different fields in law firms. I, I coach people at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. I'm very proud to say I've worked with people in the U.S. military. It's all over the place. What works for an individual parent and in a certain culture or environment is going to be what works in that culture or environment. What I generally, so that said, it varies. But what I generally really encourage people towards is greater transparency and upfront transparency. Because here's the thing, your colleagues are not clairvoyant, right? They don't know what you have going on. They may see your Zoom background occasionally, but they don't know what you have going on. So if you go in and you talk to a mentor or a boss or other people on your project team and you say, hey, I have kids who I have to pick up at daycare or at aftercare at a certain time. So if you see me logging off or leaving the building at this time, it's because I'm due down there to actually do the pickup. I want you to know that I'm always available starting 7.30 p.m. onwards after I get the kids into bed. If it's an emergency, you call my cell phone. I'm completely committed to this team's success, and I look forward to the project coming off beautifully. I think the client is really going to love our work. But I just wanted to take away any concerns or questions about you know where I am or why I'm getting up and leaving. That's just how I roll. Concerns, let, you know, talk to me about them. That's a very in-your-face way to approach the topic. But what it does is immediately dispel any misunderstanding, any sense that you are anything but a completely committed professional. But it also, at the same time, allows you to be authentic, right? It allows you to say, I'm a committed dad, and I do pickup, and that's who I am. And I'm also an effective professional. So it lets you bring, I think this phrase is a little overused, but it lets you bring your whole self to work in that, in that conversation. And it saves you a lot of sort of second guessing yourself and it saves you a lot of potential raised eyebrows or whatever later on. So I'm a big believer in that kind of transparency and in owning your narratives as a working parent. 
I think owning your narrative really makes a lot of sense. And I really appreciate that example. It's so clear. And I think it will resonate with a lot of people listening on how they might be able to approach that. Obviously, to read your book, Work Parent, The Complete Guide to Succeeding on the Job, Staying True to Yourself, and Raising Happy Kids is also recommended. I want to shift now, Daisy, to ask you more about organizations. How can organizations better support working parents? Yeah. So when I'm working with organizations and doing work, I do coaching work. I do a lot of training and workshops for working parents and managers and leaders around this topic. And then I do just some general advisory work. And whenever I'm talking to an organization, I encourage them to think about what I call the three Ps. And those are the three different legs of the stool of working parent success for an organization. And those are policies, programs, and practices. Now, most organizations, when they're trying to solve for the working parent issue, try to go long with policies and programs. And I salute that. And policies and programs are things like how long your parental leave is, and maybe you extend that, or the mentoring program that you have in place for new moms, or the policy that you have around remote work. All of those things are structural, they're visible, they're important, and they're great. The third leg of the stool, though, usually gets short shrift. Practices. Those are the small day-in, day-out ways in which you work with each other, you communicate with your boss or the people who are working for you. They really kind of the texture of how people live while they're, you know, while they're working and how they feel about their managers, their leaders, about their work, et cetera. And those things are very, very small. So it's, if you have a nice long parental leave, I salute you. And I think that is great. And I am, you know, a true believer. But I think it's also really, really important that managers and leaders inside your organization know ahead of time some of the effective ways when somebody comes into their office or beams in via Zoom or comes into the workspace and says, I'm expecting that they know the right supportive way to respond to that statement and that they know some of the techniques and hacks day in, day out for bringing somebody back from leave in an effective way. And that they're confident when they come to performance review time around how to deliver feedback in a way that feels fair and disaggregated from the fact that somebody might be working flex time when other colleagues aren't because they have kids at home. Those are small things. And I think that's they're the most exciting, right? Because those small things, they don't cost anything, right? They're behavioral, they're day to day. It's not a big program that has to be funded or publicized or have its own website or whatever. There's smaller, subtler things that anybody can do. As long as they know about them, anybody can do. And it's those practices that bring the policies and the programs that you have in place alive, that let them really, really get that benefit and create the culture that's family-friendly, but also performance-driven. And so that's where I like to spend a lot of my time talking to senior executive teams and working with groups of managers and leaders actually identifying those techniques, those hacks, those moves that will let them really, that will let them live those practices and be part of the solution. Really excellent. The three Ps, policy programs and practices, and the practices is where it sounds like there's a lot more magic and flexibility and innovation that can happen. That can yeah. really bring all of that to life. Thank you for sharing that. What about advice do you have for next generation HR leaders who are trying to balance a demanding career in life I do think sometimes HR has its own unique set of challenges and curious if there's anything you think might be different from your toolbox. 
you'd want to share? Yeah. So I think the wonderful thing and challenging thing about a career in HR is that there's a lot of urgency to what we do. Typically, we're used to dealing with a lot of emergency situations or pivots, changes. We deal with a lot of problems, sometimes very tricky problems, et cetera. And that means that as HR practitioners, because we're really good at dealing with that urgency and those problems, that a lot of times we're dealing in today or what I need to get done this week or how do I solve this problem that just popped up 20 minutes ago. And when you also have kids in the mix or family, you know, caregiving responsibilities in the mix, the sort of let me get through today or let me solve for right now way of thinking usually amplifies. So the advice that I have for people, and it's really advice that I have for myself, (laughs) honestly, and for other people too, is to spend some dedicated and regular time thinking about your long game. So two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, not just what do you want in terms of title or compensation or anything. I don't mean those kind of outward markers, but where do you really want to be playing? Where do you want to develop your expertise? Where do you want to be creating a niche for yourself? Where do you want to be developing certain relationships? What's going to be in that happy professional picture where you think you're really adding value out there in that future? Because if you have that in mind, it will allow you to have greater perspective and motivation in your day-to-day. And it will also be a little bit easier, I think, to make time for some of the things that are so important for developing an HR career that tend to just drop to the bottom of the to-do list. That means doing things like keeping up your network, informationally interviewing, getting to that conference, reading voraciously about, you know, new trends and tools that are coming into the human capital field or reading about, you know, everything from neuroscience to, you know, organizational economics to just the whole gamut. That stuff is so easy to park and ignore and say, oh, I'll get to it. But if you have that picture and if you're a little bit motivated towards that longer term picture, you can bake that into your day to day and try and kind of do a little bit of job crafting so that you're getting towards where you want to go. I love that you're pushing us to be more long-term focused, investing in ourselves. So thank you. Thank you, Daisy, for that advice. Last question for you is, what is the one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? I think that word is human. So I think we are all in a wonderful process right now of putting the H back in HR. And by that, I mean, I think the past three years really attuned, not just us, not just people in our profession, but to people everywhere, everyone, everywhere, the importance of balance, the importance of mental health, the some of the sort of prerequisites for people being able to show up and really deliver their best on the job, some of the short-term trade-offs versus longer-term trade-offs in career, in workload, and so forth. And I think a lot of that was equally at issue, you know, five years ago, you know, well pre-pandemic, but it was hidden. It was hidden. We didn't talk so much about, hey, I'm stressed out or I've got, you know, caregiving responsibilities. Now it's more permissioned. It's more open. And that means that our function, therefore, has more flexibility to address some of those things, to come up with the creative programming and the new practices that will meet some of those needs that were always there and that now have been spotlighted. The genie is kind of out of the bottle on a lot of that stuff. 
So I think we are going to be not just about resourcing and planning and delivering where needed, but about putting that really human personal touch back in our function, which is really the reason so many of us joined this function. So I think it's, it's a great motivator for all of us who are dedicated to this field. Human, putting the H back in human resources. Daisy, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for starting Work Parent and really just, I think, opening the door wide open to such an important topic with so many pragmatic and helpful tips for working parents. And thank you for coming on the podcast today as well. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for starting this great dialogue. It's wonderful to connect with other practitioners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Daisy for sharing her insights and practical advice on how to build a successful career while being a working parent. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and please help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders like yourself. We'll be back next week with Greg Till, Chief People Officer at Providence Health System, a comprehensive healthcare organization with over 120,000 caregivers across 52 hospitals and over 1,000 clinics across Alaska, California, Montana, New Mexico, Oregon, Texas, and Washington. In our conversation, Greg and I will discuss what the pandemic taught him about organizational culture and the human spirit, how shifting demographics are impacting not only healthcare, but every industry, and why flexibility is the new social capital. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.